The rest at this point, please open your Bibles up to Hosea chapter 14. Hosea chapter 14. Hosea 14. What are the first thoughts that come to your mind when you think of the word repent? Is it that picture of that angry, crazy person standing on the side of the road holding up a not-so-kind sign, using not-so-kind words and a not-so-kind tone, yelling at people? For most of society, that's probably the picture they get, the fire and brimstone preaching, the angry person who hates people on the side of the street. Those are their first thoughts when they hear the word repent. The term and idea of repentance has fallen on hard times. Many in our day want to remove it. They want to downplay it, pull it out of the teaching and the requirements within Christianity But the truth is, the Bible is not afraid to mention repentance. From the Old Testament all the way through the New Testament, God has made it clear that turning from sin and turning towards Him is necessary for a relationship with Him. It is necessary. And as we look at Hosea 14 this morning, we get a direct example. We get a direct example of the importance of repenting. Now, you might have noticed that Hosea 14 is found in the book of Hosea. You might have noticed that there are probably and are 13 chapters that precede chapter 14. And I would say you're doing well. So let's understand a little bit of the context before we jump all the way to the end of this book. Hosea was written by the prophet Hosea. Tells that in chapter 1. And his ministry was during the reign of five kings of Israel. And it stretched from about 750 to 715 B.C. And specifically, his ministry was targeted towards the northern kingdom of Israel. Now you might remember after Solomon, the whole nation of Israel was split into two sections. You had the northern kingdom called Israel, and you had the southern kingdom called Judah. Hosea writes pointedly at the people of Israel, and he will mention Judah's a little bit too, but at the people of Israel, discussing their covenant unfaithfulness to the Lord. Their covenant unfaithfulness to the Lord, who had entered into relationship with them. This was communicated very clearly at the beginning of the book of Hosea, where God has the prophet go and marry a prostitute, Gomer. And the picture there was to be an image, a picture of God's love towards his unfaithful people. The faithful God, even when his people are unfaithful to him. And throughout it, then he records that there would be judgment, discipline that would come upon them for their disobedience. Now, this discipline was no surprise. God had warned all the way back, even into the Torah, the first five books, especially Deuteronomy 28, that if they disobey, God would discipline them. If they obeyed, he would bless them. But even within there, saying, okay, if you disobey, you will be disciplined. And he says, by the way, you will disobey, but a time will come when I will restore you still. You will return. 
So Hosea tells of the people's unfaithfulness, but he paints even more, more grandly, the more wonderfully, the faithful love of God. The faithful love of God even towards unfaithful people. And all this builds to really Hosea chapter 14, where we see the final call for them to repent. But along with that call to repentance comes these sweet promises of restoration. Now, we will read through this chapter as we go through each point, but you can divide it into three sections. The first is verses 1 through 3. We see the point is to repent. Repent. The second point is verses 4 through 8, and that is to rely on God's faithfulness. Rely on God's faithfulness. And then lastly, verse 9, the point is respond wisely. Respond wisely. And all of this chapter is pointing to the fact that repentance is essential for fellowship with God. Repentance is essential for fellowship with God. So let's read our first point, the first three verses. I'll be reading from the ESV translation. He writes, Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity except what is good, and we will pay with bowls the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses, and we will say no more, our God, to the work of our hands. In you, the orphan finds mercy. Here with these beginning verses, we see a a final transition in the whole book. Much has been said about Israel's unfaithfulness and the judgment that is to come upon them for what they have done, for their idolatry. And it was it's sad, even if you read through Hosea, to hear the Lord's expression about how they have treated him. Even in the chapter 13, right before this, in verses 4 through 6, you read about God saying, I'm the one who who delivered you out of bondage in Egypt. I'm the one who's cared for you, who has provided for you, was with you in the wilderness, blessed you so that you had no need. And then after I blessed you and you arrived, you forgot me. Because they forgot me. You can almost feel the, the, the sense of heartache there, the, the compassion that God has for his people who just march away from him, take advantage of him. But when we hit chapter 14, he moves from the condemnation, the judgment, now to the call to repentance and a promise of restoration. And he says, return Israel to the Lord your God. He calls them to return This word return generally means to change in direction from one way to the previous way. You're going this direction and you shift, you change, you move towards something else. It has the idea of a turning in direction. And you note, he says what direction they're to turn towards, who they're supposed to turn towards. It is to the Lord your God. This whole idea of turning is the concept of repentance. They're given the command to turn back to the Lord and be devoted to Him. Now, note two things here. First, they are returning to the Lord. If you look at your Bibles, 
you might notice that Lord is spelled in all capitals. When it is written that way, this is distinguishing as the name Yahweh. This is Yahweh, the name that the Lord himself gave back in Exodus 3.15 when Moses comes to him, or he has Moses come to him, and he says, you're going to go deliver my people. And Moses says, well, who do I say is the God that's delivering them? And this is where we read of God saying, I am the great I am. And then he says that he is the Lord. He is Yahweh. He is the one who was the God of their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The ones whom he had made a covenant with. Yahweh, the one who is devoted to his people, who calls out his people, who cares for his people, who loves his people. So even in the usage of who you're returning to, there is much implication of do not forget who this God is. The second thing I want you to notice is he says, return to the Lord, your God. Your God. Indicating a sense of relationship. Return to the one that has set you apart. The one who has chosen to be with you. Not just a God, not just any God, doesn't even say not the God. This is Yahweh, your God, the one who has always been with you through the ups and downs, through the wilderness, through the prosperity. He is your God. Return to him. So you might ask, well, okay, why do they need to return to Yahweh? Well, thankfully, Hosea tells us it's because they've stumbled The reason they need to return is because they stumbled. One writer says regarding this word stumble, this term describes falling into disgrace and defeat as a result of immoral or foolish behavior. Falling into disgrace and defeat as a result of immoral or foolish behavior. Their foolishness, their iniquities had brought disgrace, had brought shame to them, had brought them to this point of coming destruction. Now this idea of stumbling, it isn't like, you know, you're strolling down the sidewalk and then you hit the littlest, tiniest crack possible and you send you stuttering on a few steps and then you regain your balance and you're good to go and you, you know, continue. I'm sure you all stroll down the sidewalk like that. It's not like that, where, oh, I, I, I tripped up, I took a few stutters, and then I got my balance, my bearings, I'm good to go again. This usage of stumbling in Hosea is, it's when your own foolishness has you headed toward destruction. It's like, imagine you're out hiking in the mountains. We've got a few of those around here. And you're hiking near a cliff's edge because you're in the mountains. And... You know, you're acting a little careless, playing around. You know, maybe if you guys have kids, you might have seen this once in a while. And, you know, you're not really paying attention to what your surroundings are. And in your foolish behavior, you trip on a root that sends you stumbling, toppling straight towards the cliff's edge. And you can do nothing but wait for the impending doom on this trajectory. That's the seriousness of the term stumble in the context of Hosea. They are on the trajectory of doom because they have pursued their idolatry and their wickedness. 
The pursuit of sin had consumed them. And they needed to be forgiven of such rebellious ways. Israel was called to forsake those unfaithful, idolatrous ways and instead turn to Yahweh. Turn to your God who has promised to always be with you, to care for you, to love you, to provide for you. Then he says, take with you words and return to the Lord. So if someone was to return to the Lord, they were to bring something. And what I, what Jose is doing here is laying out kind of a framework of repentance for us. They were to bring something. Now, under the law, Israel would have been familiar with bringing sacrifices. It was no big deal. It's part of life there. They would bring sacrifices to the tabernacle or the temple, and they'd offer them to God. But notice, it is interesting that they are told to take words, not animal sacrifices. So not only were they to turn away from their iniquity, they were to bring to God, to come to God with words of humble confession. And it was to flow out of the heart. See, the mouth is just the loudspeaker for the heart. The mouth is the megaphone of the heart. Jesus would pick up on this idea in Matthew twelve thirty four, where he says, For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Whatever is bubbling within you in your heart is what will fill your conversation. Whatever you love, whatever you believe, whatever you're devoted to, whatever is a priority to you, will impact directly what comes out of your mouth. And our confession, our words reveal the true state of our heart. And so in returning to the Lord, they were to come with a humble heart, humble words, humble confession, a recognition of their wrongdoing, a a stopping of their idolatrous sins, but then a confession and a returning to the one God, the God who has fellowship with them, who loves them, who desires to be with them. The one who redeems them. And it was to begin with an admission of their iniquity. And it was to be specifically towards Yahweh. It's no other God was to receive their confession. They were not just to add Yahweh to the list of household gods. He was the only God they were to have. And they were to come to him as someone in an inferior position, looking up to the mighty one, pleading, God, forgive me for what I've done. I know this is wrong. You are holy and I am not. I am living in an unholy way. And I know I don't deserve to be saved, but please forgive me. Please forgive me fully, completely. That whole, that it says, accept what is good. If you have an NASB, it says, receive us graciously. The idea is to plead for the Lord to accept their confession. And they were utterly dependent upon him to save them. And so they come with a humble cry. And it has to be a humble cry because sinful man cannot demand that God give them grace. Sinful man does not naturally deserve God's grace. And so we come recognizing, I don't deserve your goodness and kindness, but I ask for it. Please save me, God. And you know what? Thankfully, 
God is merciful to give that grace. To pardon sins. And then he says, And we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Some of you, your Bibles might say, that we may present the fruit of our lips. The idea here to pay or present, it is telling what the people will do as a demonstration of their return. A demonstration of this return that starts from the heart. Now, there are several different translations. Is it the word bull? Is it the word fruit? Your Bibles might have something different. In the footnote, you might see something uh, the other one referenced and the challenge here with understanding is the words look similar. So we are dependent upon context to help us understand is it bulls or is it fruit? Now, considering the context, fruit, I believe, is the better translation because Hosea is not focusing on animal sacrifices. The problem is primarily the heart devotion to idols. And their pursuit of sinful ways. So the focus is their confession of that wicked heart. And so it's best to translate it. We will pay with the fruit of our lips. We will demonstrate this changed heart by what is coming out of our mouth. And that's our confession. David picks up on this idea too in Psalm 51. If you remember in Psalm 51. This is David's psalm of repentance. A confession after his sin with Bathsheba. And Nathan the prophet called him out on it. And he writes in Psalm 51 verses 15 through 17. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. The issue here of when turning from sin and confessing to God is within the heart. I mean, David was king. He could have offered sacrifice upon sacrifice upon sacrifice, animal upon animal upon animal, beyond what we could imagine. He was the king. He had those resources. And yet, the more important thing is the heart. The words of our humble confession ought to flow from a humble heart. And so then he tells them also, when you take words with you, say, Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses and we will say no more our God to the work of our hands. So as part of their confession and returning in humility, The people are to recognize three distinct ways that they will not trust in anyone or anything other than the Lord. The first is the renouncing of Assyria. The renouncing of Assyria expresses that they realize no other nation, no other power could save them, could deliver them. See, Israel had a history of running to other nations when they needed help, when in reality they should have ran to God for help. Interestingly, it tells them to say that Assyria will not save us. Later in 721 B.C., they would fall captive to Assyria. Assyria did not love them. Second, it says, say we will not ride on horses. The idea of riding on horses is a symbol of power, strength, might, status. 
They give an army. So the reference to not riding on them pronounces that they will not depend upon their own strength to be redeemed. They will not depend upon their own supposed inherent goodness or status as Israel that cannot depend upon any of that for saving. And the last area of confession was to their works. They were to turn from honoring the idolatrous acts and creations that they had made, they had worshipped. And this became a big problem for them. Isaiah would pick up on this when he, he talks about, condemns them of the foolishness of their thinking when Making idols, they would take a, you know, a log and they'd cut it in half and you'd say, hell, half of it you would use to make a fire, to warm yourself, to make your food, and then you would take the other half and carve yourself out a household god and then you would praise that god for providing that fire and food. And you'd say, do you not see the stupidity of that? It is foolish. So they were to confess, realizing those things will not save us. Our works cannot save us. Our creations cannot save us. Because all those acts are really idolatry because it is trusting in something else other than God. Now Israel was to look to the Lord for their salvation. In fact, they were to be looking towards the Messiah, the Lord who would come and deliver them. So even in a call for them to return to the Lord, it still demands that they recognize that God alone is their only source of eternal hope. Now for us, it's still the Lord who is the only source of hope, the only source of salvation. And we're blessed to know more of the story, the rest of the story. We know that the Lord did come, the promised Messiah came, And he is Jesus. And he came to his own people. He lived a sinless life before his people. And yet he was rejected by his people. And they crucified him at the hands of the Romans. And yet in the amazing plan of God, this terrible, torturous instrument of death was used to accomplish something of eternal greatness, eternal value. That through Christ's suffering... Through his death on the cross, he pays for our sins. He redeems his people. He satisfies the wrath of God so that we can now come to him in repentance and faith. And when we do, he forgives our sins. He grants us eternal life. So just as Israel was dependent upon the Lord to save them, so we too are absolutely dependent upon the Lord. And it is the Lord Jesus we are dependent upon. And so he ends this verse with mentioning that in you the orphan finds mercy. The significance of this is found throughout the whole book of Hosea that because of the steadfast love of the Lord, they will cease their idolatry because they will see That at some time they will be cast away as orphans under his judgment. But God will have mercy upon them. And he will have compassion upon them. And he will rescue them. And that was to motivate and stir them to want to repent even today. Because repentance is essential for returning to good relations with God. In fact, repentance is essential for fellowship with God. 
God. And so as Israel was challenged to repent of their wicked ways, so are we. We must repent. This world must repent. But before we leave this today, we need I want to make sure that we understand repentance. See, repentance, we could say, is a humble recognition of our own sinfulness that produces godly sorrow and leads a person to turn away from that sin and turn to God. A humble recognition of our own sinfulness that produces godly sorrow and leads us to turn towards God. Many will say, I hear this a lot, well, repentance is just a change of mind. Just change of mind. That's it. You're complicating it. And while that is true, there is a true aspect to it that, yes, it involves a change of mind, that is too simplistic of a definition. Biblical repentance is more full than that. It's a changing of one's mind that produces a turning from sin into God, that produces a changed life, a changed devotion. You could change your mind about facts all you want, but until you repent, it does you no good. Hosea 14.1 is not just them changing their mind about their idolatry and turning away from it. It is a understanding their idolatry and the sinfulness of it, and then turning to God in confession, pleading for His forgiveness, embracing Him as the greatest thing. So there are, there's an intellectual aspect, an intellectual aspect, an emotional aspect, and a volitional aspect to repentance. And they all go together. We don't separate them. The intellectual aspect is that we need to know certain truths. We need to know that God is holy. We are not. That creates a problem. That only God alone can save. That our works cannot save us. That we don't naturally inherit salvation. Because, you know, I was born into a church family. We need to know the elements of the gospel. And we need to know the facts of the gospel. And that it is in Jesus Christ alone we are saved. So we need to know that and understand that that is true about us. That we are sinners who need saved. And emotionally, the aspect that comes out emotionally is a godly sorrow, a brokenness for our transgressions because they are against God Almighty. All our transgressions are ultimately against the sovereign king of the universe. And we deserve The punishment for that sin. And so as we are broken over our sin, we come to God in confession, being convicted by it, desiring to be reconciled to Him. And so as the mind is convinced and the emotion is convinced, the will comes along and turns, contributes by confessing and turning from sin, a determination that I don't want to live for myself, my idols. I want to live for God. Please help me, God, to do this. Save me. Only you save. And then we keep on that route. That true evidence will produce, will evidence, or true repentance will evidence itself in godly fruit. It will evidence itself in good works. But even in all this, we are still absolutely dependent upon the grace of God. Because repentance itself is a gift from God. But it is necessary. 
Like faith, it is necessary, a necessary response to the gospel to be saved. Jesus would say in Luke 13, 3, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So if you've never repented, if you've never confessed and turned from your sins and trusted in Jesus, you need to do so today. Stop gambling with your soul. Repent today. Turn to Jesus, trust in Him because He is Lord. He is the Savior and the only one that we can be, in whom we can be forgiven of our sins. The one we are given eternal hope from. So for those of us who are trusting in Jesus, we say, yeah, I repented. I turned to Christ. I trusted in Him. What do we do? Well, if you might have noticed that we still battle with sin that likes to cling way too closely. What do we do when we continue to fail? Well, it's been said that Christians are repenting repenters. Repenting repenters. Yes, we come to Christ the first time, turning from our sins. But as then we go about this Christian walk and we still wrestle and struggle, we continue To take every thought captive, make it obedient to Christ, to turn from our own pleasures, secret passions of our heart and turn to God and say, Lord, please help me to live for you. I'm still struggling in this area. Take take it, change it, change me so that I'd want to live for you and I'd be able to live for you in this area. There's a helpful book I've been going through on Hosea that provides some evaluation questions on how we're doing at repentance. I want to read a couple of these for you. Is there any possession, pleasure, or relationship that I am willing to sin against God in order to obtain or keep as my own? Is there anything or anyone that I want that I'm willing to sin against God to get and to keep? What about this? When I am afraid, is there anything or anyone besides the Lord himself in whom I place my trust and confidence in order to experience peace and contentment in my heart? When I'm afraid, where do I go to find peace in my heart? Or how about this one? Under pressure, do I seek relief, comfort, Reward, protection, pleasure, joy, or safety in anything or anyone other than my Lord. When life presses upon me, I just want it to stop. Where do I go to find my relief? We could go on and on with these types of questions. We should take these and evaluate how am I doing? Are there idols of my own heart that are revealed even by those questions that I need to repent of? And even in that, we still need God's grace. So the prophet called Israel to repent of their iniquity, to come back in humble confession. And we ought to follow that model for being in fellowship with the Lord. We ought to follow them that model, but Since this was written, Israel has never repented fully in this way given by Hosea. But they will one day. 
And when they do, we will see the promises of four verses four through eight fulfilled. So that brings us to our second point. Rely on God's faithfulness. Rely on God's faithfulness. Verse four says, I will heal their apostasy. Now notice this is all of a sudden the Lord himself is talking here. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely for my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. Oh, Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. So in these verses, we see now it is the Lord speaking. And he has given promises to restore and bless his people. Now these promises demonstrate God's faithfulness. They demonstrate God's love. They demonstrate his desire to be reconciled to his wayward people. But this imagery is a future restoration of Israel. This healing will only happen when the nation repents. When the Israelites repent and return to the Lord. Now, you might have noticed this is a very poetic section. And that can make it challenging to understand. We run into that a lot in the Old Testament prophets. But it, the poetry helps create pictures in our mind, a way for us to understand and grasp what the point is that he's making. And we see here, through this poetic expression, that the Lord is the one who blesses his people. He's the one who protects his people, who provides for them, and he will restore them. And he begins by saying, I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely. He says he will do this. It's an anticipated work. But the fact that he uses the imagery of healing means that there is some type of damage from sin. There is something that needs fixed. Sin is like a disease that produces rebellion and death. More rebellion and death. More rebellion and death. Over and over and over. This passage refers to it as Israel's apostasy. This is not just their willful, rebellious acts, but it's also their corrupt nature, their spiritual blindness that consumes them. They needed to be mended from the effects of their sin and from their natural depravity. We all need the cure for the disease of sin. And only God can cure that disease of sin. If you think about it, what God would say elsewhere in the Old Testament, you think of Isaiah 53, the promise of the coming suffering servant who would give his life as a ransom for his people to save and deliver them. Consider what he says in Isaiah 53, 5. It says, but he was P, this suffering servant, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. I was looking forward to what God would do to fix the problem of sin. In fact, 1 Peter would pick up on this. In 1 Peter 2.24, we read about Jesus. It says, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree, 
that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. The only healing for the disease of sin is Christ. It is what Jesus has done at the cross. We need to look to God for the remedy of our sin problem. And this point was to lead, was to show that the Lord loves his people. He will deliver them from their peril and that the work of healing comes from him. And it is a loving expression of his care. And it is possible because he says his anger has turned from them. The anger of the Lord, the wrath of the Lord has been appeased by Christ. It was directed another direction from the people of Israel when they repent. We now know it was directed toward that suffering service Jesus, servant, Jesus, on the cross, targeted at him, so that he would exhaust it, satisfy it, that you would be reconciled to God. He says, I will be like dew to Israel. He will sprout like a lily and he will take root like Lebanon. The culture depended a lot on dew, on the moisture on the ground to nurture their crops. So in this, using this imagery, it's pointing that they also depended upon the Lord for life, for all things. Because there is no life apart from the work of God. And there's no spiritual life apart from union with the Lord. God is the one here that is causing the sprouting to life, even though something was, that was once dead is now back Alive And Israel would be like a lily, a beautiful flower that was to point to their blessedness of being restored by God. And it will, it says they will take root, they will blossom, communicating new growth. And in fact, they're compared to the trees of Lebanon, which were known to be huge trees. They were amazing from what we read. And we can think of for us when we... Think about down in California, we have the massive redwood trees, the massive sequoia trees that we look at in amazement. Wow, these things are huge and grand and make us feel small, but they're so beautiful. They are renowned for their size. And he says, uses that imagery that, hey, Israel was once dead, but they will prosper again. There will be life. They will no longer be a barren wasteland. In fact, he says, their shoots will spread out His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. Shoots refers to the idea of branches. Not so much here that there are certain size of branches. The amazement of this text is the fact that there are signs of life from some who were once dead, showing that God will transform them. And he mentions this idea that they will be full of majesty and will be a visible display of God's work and compares them to an olive tree. Now, this is not the first time in the Old Testament we read of an olive tree being used for imagery of someone. In fact, in Jeremiah 11, the Lord talks about how he had made Israel like this beautiful, flourishing olive tree, but because of their sin and disobedience to him, he would bring fire and consume and destroy them. And so you would read that and think, oh, well, that's the end of the story there. Hope the next guy figures it out better than they did. 
But that's not the end of the story. They will reflourish like a fresh, full, beautiful olive tree. The olive tree had major significance in the life of someone living in the ancient Near East. It was used for a food source. It was used for oil, which oil alone had many applications from medicine to anointing to fueling their lamps for light. And so the symbolism here of comparing them now to this living, flourishing, majestic olive tree is that it's conveying that Israel will have a great abundance and prosperity all by the hand of God. And in fact, the, he would bring them to the point that their mere presence alone would be like a sweet and soothing aroma to the world that is enjoyed. And he would say that the one who dwells in a shadow, the one who returns, the one he restores and returns, they will grow grain. They will sprout like the vine. His renown will be like the wine of Lebanon. So those who return in confession are identified as those who dwell in the Lord's favor and safety. And the distinguishing trait for them here is their proximity to the Lord, that they are near God. They're said to be in his shadow. There is no better place to be. This is what makes God's people distinct. Unlike the lost and chaotic and dying world, God's people abide with him. We abide with the king of the universe who has saved us. I mean, think about what we even read that God would do in John 14. He would send a helper who would be with his people. God abides with his people and his people with him. And this ought to bring comfort. And I'll bring assurance. It was to bring assurance and comfort for Israel. These greater truths bring us comfort and assurance. God says, he finishes by saying he will grow their grain. They'll sprout like a vine. All this is communicating prosperity. They would, God would bless them in a way that they'd have no lingering need. And it ultimately comes from him. Which was good news because in Hosea 8-7, God says that his judgment will make it so that there will be no grain. Like there is no grain in the land of Israel. So all of this and this vine that sprouts productively and that their renown would be great points to God's goodness displayed. There will come a time when there will be global respect and abundant favor even towards Israel because they are near God. Now he shifts in verse 8 slightly with a rhetorical question. See, he's been describing what will happen when these people repent and return to him. He will bless them, restore them. But here in verse 8, he shifts right back to the current reality, the current situation as Hosea is writing this. And he says, oh, Ephraim, what have I, what more have I to do with idols? What do I have to do with respect to idols? Are, am I connected to them at all? Have I used them? Well, the answer that you're, you're meant to come to, the conclusion is that God has nothing to do with idols. And because he has nothing to do with idols, his people should have nothing to do with idols. In fact, it was forbidden by God in the Ten Commandments. You think of the First and Second Commandment. 
You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make a graven image. Nothing, not a single thing to do with them. And yet, Israel tripped up constantly with idols. And he pleads with them, it is I who answer. It is I who look after you. The Lord's reminding them of his involvement with them. He is the one who answered them. He is the one who provided for them. He is the one who intervened, even when they're about stumbling in their iniquities. The pagan gods they grasped onto, their idols they held onto, never came to help them. The false gods never saved them, never redeemed them out of Israel, never provided for anything that they have, and in fact, they don't even really exist. That's the foolishness of them. Only Yahweh, the one true God, who is the sovereign Lord, is the one who loved them and faithfully provided for his people. God looks after his people. God still looks after his people. God still provides for his people. And he concludes with this picture of himself as a cypress tree or a juniper, indicating he is strong. He has mighty strength. To care for his people, his children. Now, if you have an ESV, it says an evergreen tree. The, the word there is luxuriant, meaning that it is abundant. It is lush in growth. So imagine in your minds this big, full, hearty, healthy tree that overflows with producing fruit that people can enjoy and be sustained by. That is the imagery God gives about himself. He is this one that protects and provides for his people. Now Israel's restoration is still to come. The reality is that their prosperity, their fruitfulness, their renown, those are not the current conditions that Israel faces, that Israel enjoys. And it hasn't been since this warning all the way back in Hosea. But a time will come when all the hostility that it just amazingly seems to constantly be thrown at this little teeny country, when all that hostility will be transformed, replaced with renown, replaced with delight as God's people. And the Lord has promised that it will happen when they repent. When they repent, when they turn and embrace Jesus, their Messiah. Now we have the benefit of the rest of the story. And we know that this will come, they will do this at the end of the seven year period called the tribulation when God sends his wrath upon the wicked world. At that time, it will lead, God will lead them to turn and embrace Jesus. And when they do, Jesus will return. Jesus will reign with them. We Call this the millennial kingdom. It is when Jesus will physically sit on the throne of David, ruling the earth, and he will be the unrivaled king. Everything will be brought in submission to him, and he will bring everything ultimately in submission to the Father, and he will fulfill the covenant promises, and it will be a glorious day. God will fulfill his promises. Now, just a word of caution, especially approaching the Old Testament. We must be aware of thinking that 
if we trust in Jesus, we're going to have all these physical prosperity things as well. Like many of the false teachers on TV tell you, come to Jesus and you'll get health and wealth. But we are not Israel. We are the church. But God is not done with Israel. He will fulfill these promises with them. But that doesn't mean we can't learn from this. We learn that there is blessing that comes with repentance. When we turn to Christ, we get to know God. We get to fellowship with God. We know that God is always with with us, never leaves us nor forsake us. We have an eternal hope. The world could really use some hope. We get that in Christ. We can rely on the God who is faithful and loving because he said he will do this for them and he has always fulfilled his promises. So we know he will take care of us as he promised. Repentance is essential for fellowship with God, so trust him. Relying on him brings great comfort. It brings great assurance. It brings great peace in a time where many would love to have it. So God has commanded Israel to repent. He's promised to heal them when they do. And lastly, we finish with Hosea's concluding remark. A concluding challenge. Verse 9. He says, Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them. But transgressors stumble in them. This is Hosea's short final word. He is wrapping up the whole book with this one verse. And you could summarize it really as a question. How are you going to respond to this letter from the Lord? How are you going to respond to God's word? Are you going to be wise? Which means not just to know facts Not just to know what it says, but it's to know the truth and live according to the truth. It's not just about knowing facts. It's not just about knowing the Bible. You could have the best Bible knowledge in the whole church and have read every systematic theology, every book of your most beloved author. And if you do not have repentance, it's all in vanity, all in vain. The Puritan Thomas Watson wrote in his short little book, precious book on the doctrine of repentance. He says, knowledge without repentance will be but a torch to light men to hell. Knowledge without repentance will be but a torch to light men to hell. If you don't repent of your sins and turn to Jesus, you will stumble into the fires of hell under the judgment of God. So be wise. You have heard what God has said. What are you going to do with it? Are you going to be wise? Seek to understand it and apply it accordingly? To see that what God says is upright. It's true. It's right. The judgment comes upon sin. Yes, Israel should have repented because they were sinful. But I am sinful also and I too need to repent and I need to trust in the Lord. Are you going to do that? But the one who loves their sin and continues in the pursuit of it 
they will find themselves stumbling towards doom that will end very, very badly. Interesting, the northern king of Israel never repented. So what happened? Well, they didn't heed the warnings, and so they fell to the Assyrians. Hosea's message to us is that how we respond to God's word reveals the state of our soul. Are we the upright, wise person? Or are we the transgressor? What will you do with what God's word says? Every time you read the Bible, every time you hear God's word preached, the question always stands, how will you respond? Many think that going to church, singing some songs, hearing some preaching, and even giving, that's enough. That just being at church on a Sunday morning is adequate to say that you are living out the Christian life. As if going through the motions of a worship service is fulfilling your Christian responsibilities. That's dangerous territory. That's the mindset of Israel who were very good about going through the motions of worship. Sacrifices. Of heartless counterfeit worship. God called them to repent and make their whole lives about serving Him. We are called to repent and make our whole lives about serving God as well. So the question for us today is, how will you respond in a way that demonstrates a changed life, not just a changed Sunday morning schedule? Not just a Sunday morning schedule, but a changed life every day, every week. God's word ought to be propelling us on to the work of the ministry, on to repentance, on to living obediently for him, trusting in him. And as we respond, it reveals the state of our soul. The book of Hosea helps us, helps us evaluate the sinfulness of our own hearts, helps us remember the importance of repentance, helps us remember that God is reliable to his promises, he is faithful and helps challenge us that we would respond to what we learn because repentance is essential for fellowship with God. Let's pray. Father, we recognize that you are right. You are right in your judgments about man. We are sinners who deserve nothing but your wrath. And yet, it's so good to know that there is hope, that there is a remedy for the problem of sin, that there is one who took the wrath of God in our place. And we know that that one is Jesus. Thank you, Lord. And Father, we admit that we still wrestle in this battle with sin. And we long to be conformed completely to the image of Christ, but we know as long as we're here, that has not come fully, completely yet. We look forward to that day, but as we continue on this journey, this march towards the finish line, we pray that we would be faithful in putting away sin, to living a devoted life for you, all because we know that you have shown amazing love towards us. Help us to know how to respond wisely to what your word challenges us to do, what it calls us to do. And may we be found faithful. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.